In the song we just sang, no fewer than eight times, we made this statement, I believe. We were making a confession before our God. We were making a confession to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and also making a proclamation to the world, to those that may not be those who believe in Jesus that I believe that he is the one and that he died for my sins and that he lives now forevermore. And I think it's important for us to understand what it means when we say that we are believers in Jesus the Christ. And I'm convinced that chances are you are a believer in Christ. So we'll talk about that a little bit in our study today. And that's why you've come together on this occasion this morning. There are a lot of things that you could be doing and a lot of places that you could be, but you've chosen to be with the Lord's people, and we are very thankful for your choice to be with us in this congregation and as a part of our work, and as was mentioned, we're thankful for our visitors, for the fact that you've chosen to drive some distance or travel some distance to be with us, and we're grateful that you've chosen that to be a part of your day as this is the Lord's Day. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5 to a very simple passage that we'll begin with. We're going to look at two passages in the Gospel of John in our introduction here in just a moment. Oftentimes when a person writes a sermon or prepares a speech or writes an essay, they may save the punchline or the, the real emphasis of what he or she is going to write uh, or say until very late in the presentation. We're all pointing towards this climactic event. That's where he was going or that's where she was going in her essay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give away the real thrust of everything that I'm going to say simply by looking at the subtitle to the sermon today, which is that when it comes to being a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to submit, and my thesis statement, if I were writing an essay here for a professor, would be, it's more than just belief. So a person may say, I'm a believer, but they may not be a believer, but a person who says, I'm a believer, and is really a believer, is a believer. You say, well, what in the world are you talking about? He's doing double talk this morning. Well, you already probably know where I'm going, but this is a sermon that is, in some ways, first principles, but also important for us to think about as we try to teach others in the new year about what it means to be a believer in Jesus the Christ. Because you and I know of people who are believers in name, but not believers in deed. And that's the difference that we're talking about in the course of our study together today. So I want to start here in John chapter 5. And I want us to acknowledge that belief, faith in Jesus Christ, is the real core of New Testament Christianity. Faith in God and the faith that he's going to provide for us and going to do good for us and that we are going to rely on him is not just a core of Christianity. It's the core of the Bible's message in believing God and believing that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The fact is, is the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation commands and necessitates a faith in God and ultimately in his son. 
And so a person may say, I go to church all the time. I read my Bible all the time. I sing the songs. I even write a check. I partake of the Lord's Supper. They say, well, great. I'm glad that you believe in Jesus Christ. Well, I don't believe in Jesus. I just do all those things just for show. That person is not a believer. We understand what we're saying here. That person is not faithful because he's not doing at the very core of what New Testament Christianity is about. John chapter 5 and verse 24 is a verse that I remember learning at a very young age where it says, most assuredly, I say to you, and there are two key words in verse 24, at least as I count them. Most assuredly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Those two words are, are paramount. You have to hear and you have to believe. And that goes to the heart of Romans chapter 10, where we were reading in our Bible study this morning, as David did a good job, as always, of t- taking us through Romans 9 and 10 this morning. If you jump over just a couple of pages in your Bibles, John chapter 8 and verse 24 is a very familiar text where he says, if you do not believe that I am the one, the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, you will die in your sins. There's that word believe again. So if you want to go through and study sometimes the New Testament, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just look at all the different times that faith or belief or believing or believe is used. And that's why I chose 1 Timothy chapter 4 where it says, be an example to the believers, Because that's what we are focused on, is we're trying to make believers out of those who are not believers. And it may be that there is one or two or three or more that are present this morning that are saying, you know what, I've heard these things, but I don't fully believe them yet. And we'll put an asterisk next to what it means to believe towards the conclusion. We'll give that away. And then Hebrews chapter 11 is a passage that is always central to faith. You can't talk about faith. You can't talk about belief really without dealing with Hebrews chapter 11, where there famously the inspired writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please our God. Another way of saying that is if you do not believe, you will be displeasing to God. And we do not want to be displeasing to God. We want God to say, I'm pleased with you. I'm happy with your service. And with my grace, as we talked about three weeks ago, you can uh, have a home in heaven. But let me ask this, and I, I, as I thought about this particular statement, I thought about maybe I should put faith alone. But does having faith in God mean that a person is a believer? Because the vast majority, well, these days, a new study just came out in the past few weeks about how younger people and newer generations, as we're getting along, are having less and less uh, religious overtones in their lives uh, and belief in God or belief in the Bible. But a lot of people believe in God. And a lot of people believe some aspect of the Bible to be true. But does that make all these people believers? Let me share with you three biblical examples that help us to answer this question. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in, you've got it, the book of Acts. And so if you want to open to the book of Acts chapter 8, we're going to spend the rest of our time almost ultimately in the book of Acts as we start in chapter. I want to look at three examples, three individuals, and we will see whether or not simply having a faith in God and a faith in Jesus is good enough in order to be called a believer. 
Now, we all agree that it's important to have faith in Jesus Christ. John 5 says that, John 8 says that, and Hebrews 11 says that. But we need to understand, is there more required of us in order to be called a believer? Going back to our point, a person may be a believer, but not be a believer. All right, so let's look at three examples. One of those is an Ethiopian eunuch. And the texts that we are reading today are probably going to be familiar to the vast majority of those who are present with us. But I encourage you to look at them with those new eyes as if you've never read them before. And maybe we can make a point or two that you've not thought about before. But John cha- or, but, but Acts chapter 8 here is where we read about a man from Ethiopia. And he was a man of, uh, shall we say, integrity. He was a man of, uh, uh, of honesty. And we don't know what his name is. We do know that he was from Ethiopia, and we know that he served as a eunuch. And so let's just very quickly read through this very familiar text, and we'll read it rather rapidly. And I want to come back and look at, a, at about six or seven verses here. It says that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, and he said, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. The spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake the chariot. Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone comes and guides me? And he asked Philip, and he said, come sit with me. And the place in the scripture which he read said, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Then his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? Now really notice the next five or six verses here. The Ethiopian said, I'm asking you, who does this prophet speak of, of himself or another man? Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Oftentimes we leave out verse 40, but I love verse 40 because it says that Philip, passing through, preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I say that as a reminder to me that if I've had success in teaching someone and maybe they've been baptized or maybe they say, I want to I study more, I might say, whoo, I've, I've succeeded. I'm going to take the next month off because I've got one, one person interested. Philip says, I've got one person, but I'm going to keep doing the good that I can keep doing until the day that I die. Let me suggest you just a couple of things as we outline this particular text. Number one, the Ethiopian was a man of faith. That is without a doubt, and no one would dispute that. Before he is baptized, before he says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, verse 27, he was a man who had gone to worship. So he was a man of faith. 
My question is, and I'm going to give the answer away, again, as we pointed out, we're giving answers away before we really ask questions, is that was he a believer in verse 27? And I would say no. But was he a believer? Yes. It depends on what you mean by a believer. Some talk about a capital B versus a small case B. But the point that we're suggesting this morning is that was he a believer who was faithful and acceptable to God and secure in his salvation such that if he were to die in verse 27, he would have a home in heaven? The answer is a big questionable probably no in verse 27. We are not the ultimate judge. God is the judge. But based on everything that we can read, we have a problem in verse 27, even though he is this man of faith. As you go on down to verse 28, we see that he was a student of scripture. He was studying, and it says he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, it seems to me that he probably had some people around him. He probably was not traveling alone through the desert, but he was not doing this for show. He wasn't opening his Bible because someone wanted him, because he wanted to be perceived as being religious in front of someone else. Let me suggest to you that as you go back and read more closely and maybe a little less rapidly through verses 31 through 34, that we see that the Ethiopian man here was a sincere seeker. He was sincerely seeking the word and the way of the Lord. And by the way, that's what we're looking for. The problem is, and I use the word problem a little bit accommodatively, is that we can't see by looking at someone whether or not they are a sincere seeker or not. So we've got to spread the word to everyone. But what we're trying to find out is whether or not someone is going to be more interested in learning about the truth so that we might continue to have a conversation with them about the said truth. So God here recognized that the Ethiopian had a need. And so he sends Philip to him. It could have been that chapter 8 ended at about verse 31, 32, wherein God says the Ethiopian has a, a, a faith in God, is a student of Scripture, and is a sincere seeker. So I'm going to give him a thumbs up and say everything is good to go. But instead he says, I'm going to send Philip to him so that he can educate him about what he needs to do. Some other texts that we'll look at today perhaps talk about what a person must do. And there's a difference between what a person needs to do uh, versus what a person should do. And so God sends Philip for this very purpose in verse 26 and then in verse 29. And the fact is, is Philip needed to hear about Jesus in his own lifetime, and now he is going to share that message with others. So Philip needed to hear about Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch needed to hear about Jesus. We need to hear about Jesus as well, which brings us then to the ultimate part of the text, which is there in verses 35 through about verse 39. The Ethiopian recognized the necessity of baptism. This is a point that is made in sermons prior to uh, this, and I'm not the first one who's ever come across this, but I think it's one of the most important points to make is that there in verse 35 where it says he preached Jesus to him at no point in the black letters there in verses 34, 35, 36, 37 is the word baptism used until you get to uh, uh, verses 37 and 38 when he says, uh, verse 36, where he says, 
what hinders me from being baptized. And then he baptizes him. The point that I'm making simply is this. If we are going to preach Jesus, we are going to preach baptism. And you cannot separate the two. Teaching Jesus necessitates the preaching of water baptism for the salvation of one's sins. And we see that here because when it says he preached Jesus, Philip was preaching him to, to him, and the Ethiopian says, well, I need to do what the Lord Jesus has commanded of me. And so the Ethiopian voluntarily confessed that he believed. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the Ethiopian was baptized immediately on that particular occasion. Which, by the way, this is a text that you might underscore in your Bible. And remember, when you interact with those who uh, go to a particular denomination where they do baptisms once a quarter or once a month, when it's convenient for them to line them all up and just dunk them all one after another, uh, that is not a biblical concept, a New Testament pattern, or a New Testament practice. Rather, a person in the very hour of the night, as is used elsewhere in the book of Acts, decides to do what the Lord wants them to do. The Ethiopian now had cause to rejoice. So here, again, we give away the point before we give away the whole story. The Ethiopian was a somewhat of a believer, little b, in Christ, or at least in God, but was not a believer until he was baptized. So a person could be a believer in the world and not be a believer in deed. And that's the point that we're trying to make today. Let's look at Saul of Tarsus, a second example in our list of three. We're not going to read all 19 verses of Acts chapter 9. I'll give you your homework. And that is sometime in the next two to three weeks, read through the first half of chapter 9. And read through it diligently and deliberately with a sense of trying to understand exactly what has happened. It is interesting to me, and there's different opinions on this, but drop down to verse 3 where it says, He journeyed and came, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Saul, this man who we are introduced to at the tail end of chapter 7, who was not a nice man, not the kind of guy you have over and say, Would you like to come over to, to grill out some steaks? Um, not, not the kind of guy that you want to interact with, especially if you are of the way, if you are a Christian, because he's alarming in his behavior and in his talk. And he falls to the ground, and the, he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, verse 5, why? He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It seems to me that Saul recognized that the voice that was speaking to him was more than just a man. Uh, whether he knew fully who it was, I'm not good. I would not be dogmatic one way or another. But he did recognize that this is a voice that is coming either from some sort of uh, a divine place. And if you're reading from some versions of the Bible, it will say that he was afraid, he was in terror. Some versions say that he was stupefied. He was absolutely caught off guard. 
And who wouldn't be in an occasion like this? Because verse 6 says, he was trembling and he was astonished. Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said, arise and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. And the word must there is an important word as well. This is not simply because of some odd or extraordinary or out of the uh, uh, service of normalcy, of normalcy experience, but this is because it was Jesus. And Jesus' command in response to Saul's belief, because I would submit that at this point, Saul has some belief in the Lord. He may not understand exactly who the Lord is. He may not understand exactly what he needs to do. In fact, I, I don't think he understands what he needs to do because what he's told to go to the city to tell what he must do. But he has some belief at this point. And furthermore, we know that Saul believed in God. We know that Saul was very diligent. He would call himself a man of great zeal. He would call himself a man of great passion. He would call himself a man of great determination to do the things that God wanted him to do, though he was way off and out of base in doing so. If there was ever an occasion wherein God would say, here's what I want you to do, I want you to pray that you can become a believer and a faithful child of God. To me, Acts 9 is the perfect place to insert the sinner's prayer or the Lord's prayer, as it is sometimes called. This is the perfect place. But rather than saying, Saul, I appreciate your humility and I appreciate your attitude. Please pray for forgiveness and I will wipe away your sins he says, I want you to go into the city of Damascus, and there you'll be told what you must do. Saul didn't command, uh, Jesus didn't command Saul to pray, but that's exactly what he was doing when Ananias would come to him. Drop down to verse 11. The Lord said, Arise, go to the street called Straight, Ananias. Go to the house of Judas for, and ask for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. If you look at a literal translation, he prays. I love the fact that that's what he's doing. He's praying. He prays. That's a man who prays. And if I were uh, found on a road, whether it be to Damascus or someplace else, and this bright light shines down, and I am dumbfounded and, and stupefied in the way that Saul was, I probably would pray as well and continue to pray going forward. And so Ananias commands Saul to be baptized so that his sins could be washed away. Acts 22, Acts chapter 9, uh, Acts chapter uh, 20, 22, and Acts chapter 26, we see renditions and different stories of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And here in Acts 22, he says, Arise, call upon the name of the Lord, wash away your sins by being baptized. The reason I say this is because after his baptism, it is only then that Saul, who would later be called Paul, would spend a great deal of time with the disciples, and he began preaching to them. Later in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 20, you remember that some of them were alarmed as to why he was joining them, thinking that it was an imposter or that he was just trying to trick them into getting into their midst and uh, invading their fellowship, so to speak. I say that last point because now he's a Christian. Now he's a believer. Even when he had limited belief, 
he did not have full belief. Even though he may have believed in some aspect of Jesus the Christ, especially after being approached by him on the road to Damascus, it is not until he is baptized that we could call him a believer. So even though he was a limited believer at the outset of the story, and as the story progresses, it is not until he is fully obedient to God that he is a capital B, full-time, God-ordained believer. Well, that brings us to Acts chapter 16 and verses 25 through 34 to our third example. There are more examples that we could look at to prove the point that just believing in Jesus doesn't make a person a believer in Jesus. But let's look at this last one here. It one of my favorites in Acts chapter 16. Uh, we recently studied the book of Acts, uh, and we went through this particular text. But it says that Paul and Silas, who you recall in the earlier part of chapter 16, had been imprisoned in Philippi, that at midnight they were praying and they were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 25, suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosened. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, this is verse 27, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out, and he says, don't do yourself any harm, for we are all here. He called for light, ran in, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he says, now this is the, the, the prison keeper. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then in verse 31, without any sort of surprise, the first thing that, that they say is you've got to believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Now, incidentally, denominational individuals will stop the story there and they'll say, see, that's why you're wrong and we're right when it comes to the subject of the essentialness of water baptism. But just in case we miss anything, and in case they may be wrong, let's go ahead and read the next few verses, where it says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his house. So if you want to underline the word believe there, I think that's an important concept. They are not called believers until after the baptism. The jailer here asked the question, what must I do to be saved? That is the most fundamental, important, life-saving, life-altering question you'll ever ask. It is not, will you marry me? It is not, uh, will you go on a date with me? It is not, can I have a promotion? It is not, can I have a job? The most important question is, what do I need to do in order to be saved? That's what matters the most. And this, incidentally, would be another very convenient opportunity for the Holy Spirit to say, say the sinner's prayer. Say the Lord's prayer. Ask Jesus into your heart. Nothing you need to do because you're already saved in the first place. But instead, you have the list of things that are, that are uh, provided for us in the subsequent verses. With many things, the fact is, considering what Paul and Silas did not say, 
is a valuable thing to do. So that goes to the point that I just made. For example, uh, ask Jesus into your heart or accept into your heart. Uh, You're already saved because of your faith. It's already been there for you. Or pray the Lord's prayer or the sinner's prayer. What was the response of Paul and Silas? It was faith. Paul and Silas's response is, you need to believe, you need to have faith. Now, I would agree that there's probably some level of uncertainty about what the jailer knew at this point. I don't know what he knows. Part of me wants to suppose that he probably knows more than the average person in Philippi, given the fact that this is probably not the first time that Paul and Silas have spoken up about the spiritual things that they are in prison for in the very first place. And word has spread throughout the city of Philippi, likely, as to why they are in prison in the first place, why they have been put there because of the teachings about Jesus earlier in chapter 16. But he had heard them singing and praying. And by the way, We can teach by our singing, and we can teach by our praying. And I'm not just talking about when we come together on occasions like this. Some would say, you don't want me teaching by my singing in the public, and I I understand that. But there's something to be said for people noticing that you are spiritually minded, that you talk in spiritual overtones, that you pray in public, that you engage in Bible study with your family, And that in doing those things, that you set the appropriate and right example. And Paul and Silas still found it necessary to study with him. Notice in verse 32 that what's happening here is a good old-fashioned Bible study. Now, the, the occasion was certainly dramatic as compared to most of our Bible studies where we sit in someone's home or in an office or, uh, or maybe at a, a local restaurant and you open your Bible and you study for, for a while. Here you're doing it after an earthquake when someone was ready to take his own life and these are very dramatic events that have transpired. But this is a Bible study in the absence of having the fullness of the Bible in the way that we have it today, I understand. And at the conclusion of the study, the jailer was baptized, and the Holy Spirit then called the jailer a believer in verse 34. Why, in verse 34, is the Holy Spirit calling the jailer a believer when he already had believed, apparently, some of the elementary aspects of faith and the way in the earlier part of chapter 16? Because of what we said when it comes to Saul of Tarsus, when it comes to the Ethiopian eunuch, and when it comes to the jailer at Philippi. Which brings us to our conclusion of our study together today. And that is we've got to appreciate that real, genuine faith was evident on the part of all three of these men. The Ethiopian really wanted to know more. He says, I know some things about God, and I am a religious person. That's what the Holy Spirit called him. But I still need to know more. Saul, it seems to me, believed that God or Jesus was speaking to him in some particular vantage point. And the jailer was convinced by the message that he heard. But each of these men were baptized and only then began their lives as believers. 
That, I think, is absolutely fundamentally central to who we are and what we are trying to teach others and what we're trying to teach even today, that being a believer is being saved, and it's true that if one believes, he will be saved. But being a believer also requires that change in direction, one's repentance, and a burial with Jesus in water, which is baptism, which is why we find it there in Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 16, and you name it. Sometimes I've asked individuals who question the teachings of, of, of baptism and its essentialness, go through the book of Acts, go through 28 chapters, and you find me an example of someone being saved without being baptized. And you're going to have trouble finding it because it's not there. You've got 28 chapters wherein people are talking about the days of the early church, Luke primarily, the author, and the Holy Spirit through Luke. And you find where individuals are being saved by being baptized. All three of these men became believers. You know what's true about each of us as believers is we've been baptized as well. We understood that, and that's why we chose to be baptized. We didn't do it because we were faithful to God, and we just wanted to show others our faith, which is what some denominations would teach. But rather, we did it because we wanted to be a believer in Jesus Christ, and we encourage you to do that as well. As we started, we conclude. There may be one or two or three here this morning that, uh, or more that have never been baptized to have your sins washed away. We would encourage you to do that this very morning. If we can help you, uh, study with you, we'll do exactly like they did back in Acts chapter 16. We won't have to do so after an earthquake. We won't have to do so without you uh, having this uh, cataclysmic event in your life. We'll just sit down and study with you and talk to you about the things that the scriptures teach that are necessary in order to be a believer. If you are a believer and you're not living correctly and you need to make some sort of correction in your life, we would welcome the opportunity to, to help you, to pray with you, maybe to study with you. Maybe you, you just need two or three people to reach out to. We'd be glad to give you the resources to, to have those individuals that you can pray with and that you can study with, and that will help you. If we can help you spiritually in any way, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.